We're in a series on the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles for you on the round table. You can get up and grab one now. If you are unfamiliar with um, where Revelation is, maybe you're new to Christianity, we're glad you're here. And there are page numbers for you in your bulletin, but there's also a table of contents for you in the front of whatever Bible you have. Well, let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. I mean, there was a buzz that surrounded the church at Sardis. Everyone was talking about Sardis. They were like, have you heard about Sardis and the church? there? They are crushing it. I mean, they have amazing programs. Their community groups are bursting at the seams. Uh, they, in the children's program, I mean, don't even get me started. Every kid has an iPad, which we know is great, right? That's obviously helpful. And... I mean, their music is just vibrant, and the teaching is excellent. I mean, the Sardis church, they had a buzz that surrounded them. And I'm sure that when they heard other people talk, it felt good. I mean, when I hear people talk like that about us, it feels good. I mean, doesn't it? Which is why I'm sure the last clause of verse 1 Stung so bad. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. But you are dead. Now that's scary. I mean, how could they be so wrong? How could they have been so wrong about who they are? I mean, when everything on the surface looked great, and yet, Jesus' verdict is that they are dead. How could they have been so wrong about themselves? When I was young in elementary school, the uh, sport that I played most, and that's about all I did was play sports, is basketball. I was, of course, going to grow up to be an NBA player uh, until um, puberty shot those dreams uh, when I didn't reach above, you know, five, eight, and three quarters. And yes, I'm holding on to the three quarters. Uh, but I used to play all the time. Uh, I would play in regular season leagues, at a school league. I would play AAU ball. And then during the summer, I was going to basketball camps and playing in rec leagues throughout the summer. And so um, I knew that when I, I mean, I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I got to seventh grade, uh, I was going to make the team. I didn't even have to check the roster. You know why I didn't have to check the roster? Because I had already, uh, I was the third ranked player in, in the grade, according to my own ranking, right? <laughs> Which is what you do, right? We rank ourselves, right? And I was the third ranked, it starts very early. I was the third ranked player in the grade. So there's, you know, there's 14 slots on the team or so. I knew I was going to make the team. It was obvious. I didn't even need to check when they put the list, except I didn't make the team. What happened? How could the coach have been so wrong? Wait, no. How could I have been so wrong? And the answer is presumption. See, I, 
was resting on my past and what everybody said. And they said, well, Kyle's a great player, and he's one of the better players. I'm sure he's going to be a starter. And so during football season, I didn't practice. And before tryouts, I didn't practice. I didn't shoot a ball at all. And I went out and I tried out and, well, I wasn't as good as I thought that I was. Presumption can be deadly. The church in Sardis suffered from presumption, spiritual presumption. Spiritual presumption, they were resting on their reputation. They were coasting on their tradition. They thought that because of who they were sometime back then, it meant that they had to be now. Spiritual presumption stems from pride. The pride that says, I could never. It's the pride that says, I, I could never embezzle funds. It's the pride that says, I could never cheat on my spouse. It's the pride that says, uh, I, I could never judge that other person or be so judgmental. I mean, it comes across in big ways and it comes across in little ways like, I would never not recycle. Yes, that was a double negative. You figure it out. But you know, that pride comes before the fall. And there are all kinds of things that can lead a church to this spiritual presumption. Maybe it's numerical success, the fact that they're bursting at the seams and they assume, well, if we're growing numerically and if there are people coming, then we must be okay spiritually. Maybe it's the, the excellent policies and procedures that they have put in place, that there are excellent policies and procedures, and so there has got to be um, accountability and checks and balances. And because there's accountability and checks and balances and safety guards, then that means that we are going to be free from theological error and we are going to be free from uh, divisions within the church. But um, I've got news for you. The whole history of Presbyterianism begs to differ. Spiritual presumption, it could be because we take a hard line on certain issues. And we take a hard line against the culture and, and where they are at. But, you know, oftentimes you find that those churches that take the hardest line against things uh, are full of abuse and neglect. Or maybe it stems from... Um, having a great theological heritage and pedigree. And we, we are in a tradition that usually values our theological heritage, and we have a great theological heritage. And it could be that we think, well, because we have this great theological heritage and we have got uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and all these theologians, that, that therefore we are going to be okay. But you know what happens one generation does the hard work of working out and confessing the faith. The next generation is taught that faith and teaches it to their children. The generation after that assumes that faith, and the generation after that forgets the faith. That's why I think we always have to be, and we need to be, today, rewriting confessions. Not because the confessions are inadequate 
or aren't good for their time, but we have to work out for ourselves and in our own language, we have to articulate the faith because if we don't, the question is, are we just parroting or do we really understand? We need to work out for ourselves and express for ourselves why we baptize children. Otherwise, it will just be something that we heard we're supposed to do in a tradition. See, what I'm talking about is taking stock. It's a form of taking stock, which is what you have to do to guard against spiritual presumption. You have to take, spirit, you have to take spiritual inventory. I mean, imagine it with me. You are a young entrepreneur, and you have started a new uh, restaurant, and that restaurant is hopping I mean, let's say you come up with a cool fancy name like Tiger Tiger and you put lots of uh, pink things everywhere. I mean, you know, this is all hypothetical. And there is a line, a buzz, and a line out the door and you are selling tons of, uh, you are selling tons of food and people love it and there's all these write-ups about it. And, uh, and then, you know, you're so busy, you're just trying to figure out how you can serve the people that are coming and getting it all going. And, and so you don't really look at the books for a while. This all is hypothetical. And, and then you find out six months later when you finally get, eventually get around to looking at the books and checking your inventory and taking stock that you're not going to make your margins. And then you find out that actually, unbeknownst to you, one of your employees has been skimming off the top because they've been buying one quality of ingredient at a certain level, reselling that out, and getting a lesser quality ingredient. And they've been embezzling funds for the last six months, and now you're not going to make your margins because you didn't take stock. So you're resting on the fact that there was this buzz, that things were going on, that that there are people coming through, and therefore, it must be okay, but it's not okay. What would happen if Sardis was to conduct a spiritual audit? What would they find? Well, if they would have conducted a spiritual audit, what they would have found is soiled garments. Look in verse 4. It says that there are, not a few, there are a few who have not soiled their garments, which means what? It means that the majority of the people had been, had soiled their garments. Now, to speak of soiled garments is uh, a way of talking about being defiled by the idolatrous environment that surrounded them. It's, um, it's like when Pam and I moved to England, and it was a year before they banned smoking in public establishments. And any time we went out, it didn't matter for how long. If you go into, you know, a seven-foot-tall old building that is full of smoke, even if it's for 30 minutes or to get coffee and stand in the line, when you came out of that uh, establishment, the coffee shop, the pub, the restaurant, whatever, like, your clothes were just, well, they were soiled. They were polluted. I mean, you couldn't wear them again. It didn't matter if you had just worn them for an hour. It didn't matter how careful you are with the food that you're eating. I mean, when you brought those things home, they smelled so bad. They just reeked because it spread everywhere. Well, in the same way, what's happening is, is that those in Sardis are polluted by, by the environment around them. 
And if we aren't constantly on guard, if we aren't vigilant as Christians, then we can get contaminated by the idolatrous smoke that's around us. The smoke of consumerism. I am what I own, and what I own will save me. I am what I possess, and what I possess will save me. The idolatrous smoke of nationalism. I am my citizenship, and my politics will save me. The idolatrous smoke of individual expressivism. I am who I feel myself to be, and asserting myself and my values will save me. Living out my true self will save me. You know what it takes? All that it takes to get polluted by the idolatrous culture that surrounds? To get swept up into that? Nothing. All it takes is nothing at all. Which is why Jesus says, verse 2, wake up. Wake up, Sardis. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up. Pay attention. Take stock. See what's going on around you. Your works are actually not complete. He says, therefore, what you need to do is remember... Verse 3, what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. What does that even look like? What does it look like to remember what you have received and heard, to receive it and to repent? What does it look like? Well, it looks like taking spiritual inventory. It looks like actually going through and asking, um, are there areas in which we're failing or overlooking? It looks like going and returning to the end of Acts 2 and seeing What the church consisted of, the apostles' teaching, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, and asking, are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? Is there any aspect of the apostles' teaching that we're not devoted to, that we're overlooking? An apostles' teaching that has to do not only with our doctrine, but also with our lives and our service. What about the fellowship? Are we committed to the fellowship? Are we overlooking relationships? And relationships within the body of Christ and relational maturity and emotional maturity. Are we overlooking the breaking of bread? And what about the prayers? The prayers. Are we committed to that? Are we devoted to that? Jesus says, wake up. Remember then what you have received and heard. Take stock. And what will happen if they don't? What happens if they don't wake up? Verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour or what time I will come against you. You know, Sardis had this actually really great defense system. And they were located in a place that helped them have this great defense system. They had, uh, they had this kind of fortress on a hill and it could see and overlook everything. Um, so it was, it was a really militarily protected town. Um, there was only one problem, and that is they got sacked twice by foreign invaders. Uh, Once with Cyrus the Great uh, in the 6th century BC, and another time in uh, the um, mid-2nd century BC uh, with Antiochus III. 
Uh, twice the, the city was sacked, and the reason they were sacked and invaded by foreign, uh, foreign invaders were able to get in is because they came when they didn't expect it. It was a sneak attack. And though they had this great fortress and all the stuff, they were, at sleep, they were asleep at the wheel. When Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, that would have had resonance for the people at Sardis. He's saying, it's not just going to happen to your city, it's going to happen to your church. I will come. Now, when Jesus says, I will come, I don't think he's talking about his second coming. And the reason I don't think he's talking about his second or final coming, what's called the, the second coming of the parousia, the final appearing of the Lord, is simply because it's conditional. He says, if you don't wake up. Uh, that means that he's saying that this coming that he's going to have is conditioned upon them waking up or not. But that means that if Jesus will come if they don't wake up, and he won't come if they do wake up, and this isn't the second coming, the final coming, then it means that there's more than one coming again of Jesus. Exactly. Did you know that? Did you know that there's more than one coming? Or two or three or four? What does Jesus say to the high priest in Mark chapter 14, 62? From now on. From now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on. And he wasn't lying. And he wasn't talking about some high priest in the future. He was talking about that one right there. From now on, you will see the Son of Man coming. Jesus is always coming, coming to this world and to his church to visit this world and his church in salvation and in judgment. He comes again and again and again and again, which will lead up to his ultimate final coming when he will judge the world in righteousness and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is coming Jesus can come at any time. Jesus can come all the time. So the question for you and me is, what is he going to find when he comes? Is he going to find people, a church asleep, who have soiled their garments? Or is he going to find those who have not? Look, verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. You know, it's interesting. Uh, on the one hand, verse 2 says that the church as a whole is about to die and they have to bring back to life what is about to die, that this is the church of the whole. And at the same time, verse 4 talks about this faithful few. And what the Bible does here and the Bible does throughout is it holds two things together that we have a really hard time holding together. And that is uh, that there are communities, there are cultures that really prioritize the collective, the whole, the community, like in the East. And in Western cultures, especially modern Western cultures, we really prioritize the individual. We don't think in terms of the whole, the corporate, the community. And yet here we see that Jesus will address churches as a whole and talk about them as a whole, and yet he also has room to look at and talk about each individual. And the individual is not just, uh, the collective is not just the sum of its individual parts or the majority. It's not how it works. There's a church that is almost dead, and yet there are few who are faithful. And so we always have to ask the question, what does God say if he came to us as a church? What would he say if he came? And he saw CPC. And we have to ask the question, what would he came if he saw me? Kyle Wells, individual. And you, 
See, these are the questions that we always have to be asking. What would he find if he came? Would he find those who were asleep at the wheel, or would he find those who have remained steadfast? Would he find you to be steadfast? Well, you want him to. Because listen to what he promises if he does find you to be steadfast. First, he promises white garments. Look, verse 5. To the one who conquers, they will be clothed thus in white garments. White garments symbolized in that world victory. It was the robes that you would wear to a victory celebration, and that is, that is appropriate for one who conquers. Of course, this conquering is an ironic conquering because the one who conquers is Jesus Christ himself who conquered through being martyred, suffered and died, killed, crucified. And these, they conquer probably through their witness, which is a suffering witness. And yet he says they will be given white garments. You will be given white garments if you overcome. White garments not only uh, symbolize victory, but they also symbolize purity. Look, verse 4. He talks about people who have not soiled their garments, who walk with me in white, for they are worthy. People who have not soiled their garments, they walk with me in white, they are worthy. Now, if you're just checking out Christianity and you're here today, then this probably does not sound peculiar to you at all. In fact, this confirms what you mostly think about religion. And that's this, that, that, you know, most of the time when I ask people, uh, do you believe there's a God or some kind of afterlife or something like that? They say, yes. They say, well, you know, do you believe you're acceptable to him? And they often say, well, I'm trying to be. And if I do enough, then I think that I will be. And I feel like, on the whole, I'm a pretty good person. And if my, uh, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, right? And there's whole, like, TV shows on this, right? The Good Place. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I will be okay. It's, it's, a, it's a funny notion, but it's actually a deeply held notion that most of us hold. And so when we hear Jesus saying this, what we hear him saying is that I will give gifts to those who are worthy. I will give the gift of my salvation to those who are worthy. And that doesn't sound peculiar to most of us at all, especially if we're not Christians, but even if we are. But for some of us, that sounds really peculiar because we've heard and read and know ourselves and know elsewhere that, that it was when we were sinners that Christ died for us. That God showed his love to us in this, that while we were enemies, he sent his own son to die to reconcile us. And that God justifies the ungodly, the unworthy, those who cannot present any kind of worth or merit or anything like that to God, that those are the ones that God gives his gift of salvation to. And so we read this and it seems very peculiar. I mean, what do we do What do we do with the grace of Jesus Christ, which is a grace given regardless of worth, irrespective of worth, of who we are and what we've done and what we've achieved and where we come from? What do we do with that in Jesus' statement that these people who have not sold their garments, who walk with him in white, that they are worthy? 
to do so. We must remember this, that the garments, the white garments that are given, are always just that, given. Never our own achievement. And if we keep those garments from being soiled, there are always garments that began and end as God's gift to us. And that though God justifies the ungodly, there will be no ungodly in heaven. Because the gift that God gives, the gift that's given to the unworthy, actually makes us worthy as we possess it. Because the gift itself is our worth. And that means that the God who justifies us through the gift will sanctify us through the gift and will ultimately glorify us through the gift. In other words, when God declares you righteous and you are unrighteous, so shall you be. That God's word is powerful and transformative. Here's what this means. It means that the sins which once defiled your past, no matter what they are or how defiling they are, will not define your future if you receive the gift of Jesus Christ. It means that the sins that haunt you and follow you around will no longer mark you because they will not be there. And it means that it is only appropriate that those of us who recognize that we have no worth in ourselves and no intrinsic value and look outside ourselves to another, to another gift for value, for life, for worth, and that we receive that gift, if we continue to hold on to that gift who is Jesus Christ and follow him, it is only fitting that we would get to enjoy that gift forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what he's saying. Jesus promises white garments. And not just white garments, he also promises to be our eternal advocate. Look, verse 5 goes on, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. To have your name written in the book was to have your name written and enrolled in the citizenship of Sardis. When you died, your name was erased. Kind of like, you know, some churches... Uh, when people die, if they know it, they erase their name for the membership list. Uh, other churches don't because it's too big or whatever, right? But Jesus says that to this one who conquers, who follows me, who holds fast, that he will never blot out his name from the book of life. And that is the, there can be no more certainty than that. That neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus will ensure that your name remains. He will be your advocate. He will be there. There at the front looking for your name and making sure that it is there at the entrance to the party. And not only that, he will confess your name. Look, he goes on, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You know, 
hearing your name is actually like super powerful. Um, that's a really technical way to say it. It's super powerful. And there have been studies that show that even folks in like a prolonged vegetational state, that, that they have um, certain, uh, certain um, brain, uh, certain brain uh, mechanisms, things like that, that fire when they hear their name. I mean, to hear your name is powerful. It's why, like, no matter what's going on in, like, a big social setting, if you hear someone say your name, even if they're referring to someone else, you always have this kind of cognitive dissonance. And you don't hear anything that's else said across the room, but you heard your name, right? To hear your name is powerful. And Jesus says that he will stand before his fathers and the holy angels. The most important judge of the universe and he will say your name and advocate for you. And he will say, I have their back. They're with me. Jesus promises to be your internal advocate. White garments, an eternal advocate. And finally, he promises unending fellowship. He says, they will walk with me in white. They will walk with me. To Walk with someone through something means to experience it with them in the fullness of it. It's about relationship and fellowship. It's what Adam and Eve experienced in Eden in the cool of the day, and it's what was cut off from them because of sin. You know, the rest of our lives we have been looking for someone to walk with us, close with us, beside us, we're all looking for it. Over my daughter's desk at home, she has her Christmas list. She's starting early. I, 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 you know, I would get on my high horse except for the fact that I've been like scouring Craigslist every night for 10 minutes for a surfboard. So I can't really, for Christmas, so I can't really like blame her. Um, but she's got her Christmas list, and, and on her Christmas list, there are the usual things, you know, American Girl doll accessories, things that we all want, and <laughs> a, a, a cool eraser, like her cat eraser, right, is one other thing that she has. Um, and uh, I'm, you're supposed to be taking notes here, people. Uh, and one of the things that kind of jumps out is a little unusual, she says, and a best friend. I'm not sure that if we weren't honest enough, that wouldn't be on all of our lists. Because even when we have close friends, we long for a relationship that is closer than what, anything that we've experienced in this life. We long for a friend that sticks closer than anything that we've experienced in this life, that walks with us through everything and anything and knows us Beyond what we know ourselves, beyond our, our knowledge of ourself. And Jesus says, I will be that friend to you. I have called you friend. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus has laid down his life for you. But he did it when you were his enemy to make you his friend. And what he is promising something so glorious it's beyond anything that we can imagine in this earth but all our longings point to it to the one who overcomes
Don't you want that? Then press on. Wake up, press on, and look to Jesus. Amen.